the show that goes there. This is the Shaggy Jenkins Show on the Pacifica Radio Network. It's the Shaggy Jenkins Show all the way from the city of Pukalani. If you've never heard of that before, shame on you. It's uh, on the Isle of Maui. Uh, It's in the 50th state of Hawaii. Coming up today, we are going to talk about a lot of stories, including Saudi Arabia, Europeans' whole reaction to it, and how they're hoping that's going to wag the dog with the United States, how the news media is tearing politics apart, and more. Before we get to all of that, I'd like to welcome you to my show. Hi, everybody. I am your host. My name is Shaggy Jenkins, critical thinker, problem solver, guy just left of normal and sane, and always found online at my website, shaggyjenkins.com, on Patreon. Look for The Shaggy Jenkins Show on Stitcher and Spotify. Same thing. Look for The Shaggy Jenkins Show or wherever fine social media is patrolled by Russian bots looking for intelligence at Shaggy Live. Joining me from the city of Racine, Wisconsin. He is not so rusty, but he is from the middle of the Rust Belt. Please welcome Midwest correspondent, writer, director, comedian, it's Ron Pertee. Yes, comrade. How are you today? I mean, uh, hey, Shaggy, how's it going? Ah, da, da. Intelligence looks very good on social media, da. Yes, it very much uh, ampersand and so forth. Well, speaking of news under a different accent, let's jump right into today's story, shall we, Ron? We shall. Okay, let's go with the worst possible nomination for leader of the free world coming out of the European continent. If I had to give you uh, that choice, Ron, who would you uh, who would you think is the worst country on the European continent possibly to lead the world? Well, I don't know if they're the worst, but I mean, based on their history, I would say I wouldn't trust Germany as far as I could throw their schnitzel. Yeah, I know. And as long as we're speaking of modern trust, uh, modern trustworthiness, Italy, with their pro-fascism approach to government and their clampdown on uh, free media and stuff, rivals that of Erdogan and Turkey. So Germany, not looking so bad these days. And, oh, go for it, Ron. No, I was just going to say, it's like apparently the Mussolini Museum's about to open in Italy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they're really fans of keeping those trains on time and putting a boot to the neck of people. Okay, you get the picture, but okay, Ron, here's the deal. There's another country out there that has recently been in the news for some very, very nefarious operations outside of their sovereign soil. And believe it or not, it's not Russia this time. It's Saudi Arabia. Now, you know the story from last week, right? I do. Yeah, a reporter by the name of Jamal uh, Khashoggi, uh, he basically went in to go get some divorce papers, or that's what he was told, and uh, ended up, well, that's the big question mark, isn't it, Ron? Uh, (laughs) I think we know for a, pretty much know for a fact that he ended up into a bunch of little Jamals. Mm, yeah, that's just it, uh, because one of the people that was, you know, <clears throat> reportedly involved in this whole operation, rogue or whatnot, had a bone saw, and you typically don't keep those around for just craps and giggles, huh? Well, I mean, it depends on it depends on what kind of a, a of a human being you want to be, but I think no, you don't usually keep a a, a bone saw handy. Uh, I mean, it, that all depends on if you have um, uh, a love of uh, uh, burying human remains or if you're from Wisconsin. Well, here's the thing. 
when it comes to Germany leading the world right now, Merkel is kind of hoping that her latest actions will kickstart a reaction uh, across Europe, maybe even in the United States, although she's not really counting on us right now, Ron. Sad, huh? I don't think anybody's counting on us. Nobody can actually... Um, <laughs> you can tell... Uh, a certain individual things that need to happen mm. and he's just going to flip flop. He's, I mean, I read an article and I should have brought this to you uh, about how Trump is actually uh, uh, bragging about how he's making money as president. Oh yeah. I kind of read that when and was like, of course he is. He just doesn't care anymore. So he's not going to give a, a crap what, uh, yeah, what anybody uh, what, thinks. Yeah, exactly. And, and getting to that point, it came last week to the shock of the diplomatic world, Trump's reaction to Saudi Arabia and their possible involvement, okay, let's just be honest, definite involvement in the death of a journalist from the Washington Post. Now, here's the thing. Jamal Khashoggi is a very outspoken critic of the crown, specifically MBS, Muhammad bin Salman. He is the young prince that's been trying to court all of this money that Donald Trump has been bragging that he's getting some of. However, now today, Germany is kind of coming out and saying, look, we're going to stop all negotiations and arms deals with Saudi Arabia until they answer questions behind the death of Khashoggi. Now, Ron, Germany, I don't know if you know this, really doesn't have any dogs in this fight. No, they don't. That's the thing. Um, and, and here's, here's okay, you are a far more uh, well-informed individual than myself. So let me ask you this. Uh, Osama bin Laden was from Saudi Arabia, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. And he perpetrated 9-11. Yes. Okay. So we're we are doing business with the country that spawned the person that created the largest death toll of Americans in a domestic attack. Yeah. Yeah, so okay, that makes a lot of sense because actually no, it doesn't make any sense because here's the thing with Donald Trump. If it isn't making dollars, it isn't making sense. That's all he thinks about. He doesn't care about anybody. I mean, look how he's flip-flopping with the Zodiac Killer. You know, Lion Ted's now Beautiful Ted. Just because, uh-oh, he's scared of the candidate in the Metallica shirt. Yeah, Beto O'Rourke is uh, right now behind in what they're considering large single digits. But look, domestic things aside, Trump's reaction to this whole Saudi Arabia thing, like you said, was money first. Yeah, exactly. And that's just, it, it boggles my mind how people can support him and people can support that and how people think that that's a good idea. You know, I mean, and they, they, the, the, uh, and it's not just him. All right. This country is, has completely lost its way. All right. I mean, you, you know about how uh, people are, are asking questions of the, of the crown prince and of, of the Saudi government. But here's the thing: our government needs to be do say say something to businesses around here about how you shouldn't be doing business with them. Case in point: the WWE. 
Yes, the WWE. Have you heard about this? Yeah, they're planning to go back and have another Royal Rumble. Well, it's actually just a big pay-per-view. It's not a Royal Rumble, but uh, that's just me being a wrestling nerd. But anyway, the point is they have – and the last the, – the, the greatest Royal Rumble that they had was basically a big advertisement for the Crown Prince. This one, they're spending just as much money. They even got a wrestler who's been retired for nearly a decade to come out of retirement. And there's all, the only reason he's doing it, you have to know, is because of money. And it's not money that Vince put up. It's got to be the Crown Prince that did it. Now, they're spending a lot of money behind the WWE, but here's the part of the story that gets me about that, Ron. The female personalities of the WWE aren't invited. Well, and that's the thing, is they're having, and I think they did this uh, intentionally because Vince McMahon is not an idiot. Uh, This Sunday, uh, if you're listening to this, whenever you're listening to this, to the 27th, um, I think it's, no, 28th, they're having an all-woman's pay-per-view. Oh, so they're setting them up with a little bit of a paycheck to make up for the fatter paycheck they could have made, like the male entertainers that'll be going to Saudi Arabia. Okay. Exactly. Now, this is the thing. Just like with the WWE, the United States is kind of blind to the atrocities committed under that kingdom because of the cash. Yeah, it's all about those greenbacks. That's all that matters. And, and any kind of dignity or self-respect that you may have is, is right out the window. And I know that I am a, I'm a little biased here. I'm an Obama fan. I, I, in, my, in my heart, uh, he's still president. But it's it's I like to think I, I, I hell, even I like to think even under a Bush presidency that we wouldn't be doing business with the Saudis after all this. You would think so, wouldn't you? But then you would be wrong. Of course. Now, here's the thing about being wrong, Ron. <clears throat> Germany thinks that the United States response to Khashoggi's death was wrong. So Merkel decides that she's going to stop all future sales. Now, she's hoping that this will put pressure on another beleaguered country with a united name, the United Kingdom. Now, if you think that we're messed up with Trump, think about this, okay? Trump is basically keeping the Saudi deal in place because it looks good on his economic bottom line. The Tories in the UK are faced with a similar crisis. They're the ones that are right now in power under Prime Minister Theresa May, who only consolidated her government with the help of the very, very conservative Irish DUP. These two entities are basically blockading the Brexit and pissing off a lot of Britons. Now, here's the thing about it. She's now under pressure from those very same pissed-off people that want their jobs to say, even in a beleaguered economy like a pre-Brexit, tumultuous UK economy, we need to stop doing business with them. And calls from the Labour Party and Jeremy Corbyn have actually came out and said, if you won't do it after the elections are, are coming out, Labour will make sure that we don't do business with Saudi Arabia. So at the end of the day, Merkel's plan could actually put pressure on somebody that doesn't take pressure from anybody outside of the U.S. Yeah, and I, I mean, we got to remember something also when it comes to Theresa May. She is in the back pocket of Rupert Murdoch. And uh, they have, and I used to, I used to love to say that I, well, I, I listen to the BBC for my news because, well, how, how are they biased, right? 
Well, they are. And uh, if, if there was a poll a while back that what, you know, what country, you know, like the, of the 33 countries in Europe, um, you know, who had the most uh, reliable newspapers, uh, England came up 33. Wow. Well, I mean, you got to face it. There's places like the Daily Sun and the Independent that are yeah, not really known for being, well, let's just be honest, not that honest. It's very true. And but you got to remember that there, uh, apparently, from what I gathered, um, uh, being in England right now is not exactly all uh, uh, peaches and cream like I wish it was. Well, of course it's not. And that's because they're already under pressure to find new financial means to float their economy after the Brexit. And as such, there is a lot of pressure on Tories to keep doing business with Saudi Arabia. Now, this is the thing, Ron. That case goes country to country, uh, continent to continent, where a lot of people are feeling pressured to stay in business because of the cash, but ignore the human rights as they happen in front of them. Where is this going to shake out, do you see, in the near future? It all comes down to what happens in November, in a few weeks. Um, because I think if the blue wave does come and it puts enough pressure on Trump, he's going to have to do something. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about good news, okay? Because here's the thing. Here lately, me and you have been going to some pretty dark corners of America's culture and news, have we not? Yeah, and I think it was me who demanded that we at least do one happy news story. Well... Today, there was a couple of happy news stories, and this is something that I've actually brought up on the program before. As much negative press as we see around the globe, it's kind of like that Beatles song, things are getting better all the time, aren't they, Ron? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, it's, uh, I, 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 you don't see it looking out your door. No. When you, when you see neighbors with mega hats, but you know. I know, I know. But speaking of those guys with MAGA hats, typically on the socioeconomic scale, uh, the blind supporters of Trump aren't really <clears throat> financially or educationally upward mobile, are they? Uh, let's call it what it is. They're trailer park trash. Okay, okay. I resemble Not that a, remark. No offense, to, no offense to people who live in trailer parks that aren't trash. Yeah, okay. But uh, getting into that whole uh, debate, look, Cases like when people look at trailer parks and stuff, they see extreme poverty. Well, that extreme poverty that you think you're seeing isn't really that extreme. And around the world, extreme poverty is things like uh, digging through garbage and dead animals for your food, having unclean water supplies, no access to any sort of communications, no access to health care. Extreme poverty is extreme isn't it yeah i mean if you if you can afford a trailer you're not uh you're not that broke right as a matter of fact if you can afford that trailer you're actually in up the top three percentile of richest people on planet earth and that's something that's kind of interesting because ron according to new studies extreme extreme poverty around the world has dropped off significantly in the last couple of years well, hey, there you go, folks. We're all going to get rich. 
Okay, no, we're not all going to get rich. However, in areas that have typically been depressed and exploited financially, they're now starting to get a little bit more stable. And as they stabilize, conditions for people in those countries and in those regions improves drastically. Hooray! Okay, okay. Well, here's another thing that's linked to extreme poverty. And it's one of those things that we used to see a lot of infomercials about. Ron, what do you know about the trend in world hunger? Um, um, I don't, I, I'll be honest, I don't know a lot because if I'm hungry, I eat something. Okay, well, here's the deal. A lot of people don't really recognize the fact that the United States is one of the leading producers of food waste, to the tune of half a million pounds of wasted food per year. Now, other countries have looked at similar issues with their food waste and have come up with some rather inventive ways, not only of reducing the amount of this food that ends up in their landfills, because, let's just face it, a half a million pounds a year is a lot. But it is. here's what other countries are doing, and the United States, in little pockets, is starting to try all of that food waste from restaurants, from grocery stores, typically is still good, but is not display quality. So now... Thanks to a network of redistributing food versus wasting it and throwing it in the uh, refuse bin? Ron, good news, world hunger is actually down. Well, that's fantastic. And I, and I, you, I mean, can you really blame grocery stores for throwing out the stuff that's not like visu- visually appealing? Because they do have to make a profit. Okay. Only in the United States do we have that model. Remember how I mentioned a little bit earlier things in the UK are kind of same but different? One of the differences they have, and it actually started from a French model, is the ugly grocery store. You ever heard of one? I have not. Please inform me about these ugly grocery stores. Okay. When it comes to grocers that buy for the big box, you know, retail-level grocery stores... They only pick the most visually stimulating and good-looking produce to be had. This doesn't necessarily mean, however, the most flavorful or the most bang for your buck. These quote-unquote ugly produce end up going to waste a lot of times. So instead, France said, look, get over the looks And please note that food is food, and nutritious food is nutritious food, and the fact that we throw out so much, it's causing us to raise prices on it. So, start selling the ugly fruits and vegetables, and reduce the cost of produce across the board. Neat idea, huh? Uh, I mean, yeah, it fits the French personality. Yeah, it does. You know, I mean, let's just face it. French people tolerate a lot of things that are less aesthetically pleasing to the eye than most Americans would. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, France is kind of, uh, okay, I can't make that joke because it's mean. Oh, okay, okay, I thought you were going to go with the joke about, just look at the career of Gepard Depardieu. However. (laughs) No, it was way worse. Okay, moving on, here's the thing. 
World hunger, according to the International Food Policy Research Institute, between 2000 and 2017, has been dropping in countries that have typically had problems with not only food distribution, but availability and accessibility of fresh food. Now, here in the United States, I should probably warn you that certain parts of the eastern seaboard, some of the big metropolitan areas, are actually a lot less accessible to fresh food and produce than their third world counterparts. Really? Really. They're called food deserts. Should look into those. But this ugly fruit trend hasn't made its way to the United States. However, ugly produce in the future could actually have us throwing away less produce per year, resulting in more nutrition, less hunger, and lower prices across the board. Well, that would uh, make a certain Cheeto happy. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, here's the thing, too. Ron, when's the last time you actually took some time off? Uh, I don't remember the last time I took any kind of time off. Well, here's the thing. Because of that whole world hunger is going down and they're changing the way that we're distributing food, lowering the cost, meaning that more people are spending less per capita on fresh food, guess what else people are now having more around the world than they've ever had before? Vacations. Free time. Now, of course, famously we could reference the European countries that are starting to lock down on the amount of time that you can actually work. And it's driving my American boss crazy, but I've engaged in a little bit of French rule myself. I am not checking any emails or work-related messages on the entire time that I am off every single day. Because according to the French research behind labor practices, Americans are typically way overworked and way too little relaxed. So, Ron, with the rest of the world picking up more leisure time, don't you think it's time the United States kind of takes a break? Uh, don't don't I know it? Especially the the couple of weeks I've had, I I need a vacation. Mm, yeah, tell me about it. Uh, now and this is the thing too. There's a bunch of charts that are pointing to a bunch of good stories, including things like life expectancy is on the rise again. Not too long ago, I t- I said how the U- the United States, the mortality rate is starting to increase, and maternal matern- maternity rates. Uh, mortality rates, I'm sorry, uh, they're increasing too. However, around the rest of the world where access to health care and clean drinking water is improving conditions, life expectancy for the human race on a whole is in a sharp upturn. Well, that's uh, a good thing, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, here's another thing. Uh, Of all the people in the world that could die, and I do mean people, don't throw puppies at me right now, what is the saddest? The sa- like the saddest person that could die? Uh, I mean, I'd be well. I mean, I, right away I think about my my family members. Okay, but what uh, age group? Oh, like the 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 um, I'd say either really really young or someone around our age. Okay, well here's the good thing uh, for people that have a very soft spot about dead children, and let's just face it. If you don't have a soft spot when we mention the words dead children, you are soulless. Jesus. Uh, but getting into this, look, child 
mortality across the world from the years 1990 all the way up to present has dropped by, get this, half. Well, that's that's amazing. Now, this has to do with, you know, developing regions, of course, getting gains in medical technology, access to uh, pharmaceutical Western medicine and stuff. However, on the whole, around the world, less and less children are dying. And around the world, you know, the United States is skewing a little different. Women during childbirth are actually surviving at greater and greater rates. Ron, if I had to tell you that maternal morticide or, you know, a mom dying during childbirth is is a problem in the year 2018, would you believe me? No. Well, it has been for the longest time, but those numbers are falling drastically. And look, I know in just a little bit we've got to get into some more sad and crazy news, including how the press is basically ruined politics as we know it. But Ron, if you're a pessimistic person and you look at the bigger picture, can you still be pessimistic? Uh, it depends on what you're being pessimistic about, because I mean, I'm not I'm, I'm a pessimistic person, but I I pick and choose things. Yeah, yeah, I do too. But when you pick and choose from all of these graphs of all the things that you could possibly say are getting better, look, the weirdest one that I'm kind of mad about is, uh, Ron, people are getting taller now. Oh, you... Mm, yeah, I, can't, I know. I can't, I can't use the M word. Yeah, I know, but the thing is, is I am rather short. However, around the world, short people like me got no reason to complain because over the last couple of years especially in the last decade world heights are now up and this could mean better basketball games for us all well hey you know i'm all about the bucks getting somebody good to play uh i've never had that issue uh i'm six foot three so my only issue is hitting my head on things um, but yours seem to be uh, reaching things on the top shelf at the grocery store. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and, and I could run through a bunch of others. Smoking is way down. Uh, teen births in the United States are down, and, and, and so much more. But, Ron, we got to take a, a quick break here. Okay, look, when we get back, we're going to cover how the United States media might be ruining politics in ways that you never dreamt possible, and... We don't even know how we can fix it. That and more is coming up next. It is the Shaggy Jenkins Show. Scientific American 60-Second Science. I'm Annie Sneed. When humans take the drug MDMA, best known as ecstasy, they feel a deeper connection to others, emotionally and physically, because MDMA affects serotonin, a nervous system chemical. Serotonin is, you know, one of the oldest neurotransmitters. 
Gould Dolan, an assistant professor of neuroscience at Johns Hopkins University who studies social behaviors. It's been implicated in all kinds of functions, lots of them having nothing to do with social. And so we wanted to know, well, how long ago was serotonin's function, you know, really about encoding social behaviors? So Dolan and her colleague did what any scientist would do. They gave MDMA to octopuses. Octopuses are asocial creatures, and their last common ancestor with us lived more than a half billion years ago, which made them a good test subject for the question at hand. The researchers set up a simple test. We have a large chamber, um, which is basically an aquarium tank, and then we divide it into three chambers. And on one side, we put a little overturned flower pot that's clear and plastic and has lots of holes in it. And underneath that overturned pot, we have a toy object. And on the other side, we have another uh, overturned orchid pot, but this one has an octopus in it. The researchers put an octopus in the middle chamber and watched it swim around for 30 minutes. They measured how much it interacted with one side of the chamber, the one with the other octopus, versus the chamber with the toy. Then they soaked the test octopus in a beaker of MDMA, put it back in the aquarium, and watched it for another 30 minutes. And what the researchers saw was weirdly similar to a human on MDMA. Before they received MDMA when they were interacting, they're very reserved. Even when they're spending time in the social side, um, they are sort of mashing their bodies up against the side wall and extending only one arm out to touch the flower pot and very tentatively touching with one arm. After MDMA, all of the animals spent significantly more time in the side that had the other octopus in it. And what's more is, is that the quality of their social interactions changed. They were much more loose in their, in their body posturing, so they were allowing, you know, several arms to touch the sides of the flower pot, like sort of like hugging around the flower pot and exposing the bottom part of their body to the other octopus, which, you know, the way that they were doing that was really suggesting that they were exploring rather than, you know, any kind of aggressive posturing. These observations indicate that serotonin began playing a role in animal social behavior more than 500 million years ago. Dolan says these findings could help scientists better understand social behavior, as well as give clues about possible treatments for human conditions like schizophrenia and PTSD. Meanwhile, we've learned, not surprisingly, given their anatomy, that octopuses are excellent huggers. Thanks for listening. For Scientific American 60 Second Science, I'm Annie Sneed. Dig deeper. Remove the hype. Find the facts. It's the Shaggy Jenkins Show on the Pacifica Radio Network. It's the Shaggy Jenkins Show, live from the city of Pukalani. Hey, welcome back to the show. If you've missed anything, please make sure that you go and check it out on Spotify or Stitcher, just look for the Shaggy Jenkins Show. Or follow me on social media at Shaggy Live, and you can even catch some videos of these shows and behind-the-scenes stuff you may have missed. Joining me from the city of Racine, Wisconsin, he is, well, a writer, he's a comedian, he's host of his very own podcast, The Ron Pertee Show. Please welcome Ron Pertee. 
Hey, Shaggy, thanks again for always having me on and always bringing down the quality of your program. Every single week. Uh, Speaking of bringing down the quality of things, Ron, do you think me and you are the downfall of democracy? We are the downfall of democracy. Okay. Didn't really expect you to agree so quickly. Thanks, buddy. Hey, no problem. It's what I do. Now that the show has come to a completely uh, screeching halt, can we talk about my 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 uh, love of the new doctor? Uh, sure. We'll take a quick diversion here. Go for it. I think she's amazing. She's adorable. She's charming. She wants to be what the last doctor couldn't be, and that's a helper. Yeah. Okay. Okay. What do you mean by helper? Well, actually wants to go out and help people and not just kind of come upon them and feel obliged to help them. Mm. Well, you know, a lot of times journalists actually act like that, if you can believe it. We we think that every day, especially like me, I know this is kind of sad and depressing, but I believe every single day when I'm prepping for this show that I'm doing something good. But, Ron, it turns out that modern American journalism could be ruining politics as we know it. Um, you know, I would have to agree that modern journalism is ruining politics. And let me here's my theory is I think when you have so many differing voices and you have so many differing um, uh, outlets like MSNBC and CBNN and CBS and ABC and and uh, and Fox News and all these people who are spouting off all these different things, you never get the same thing. Nobody just reports the news anymore. You know, it's 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 kind of like uh, George Romero's movie Diary of the Dead. His whole commentary on that is how just because everybody has a voice, should they use it? Well, that was the thesis of one young ideological John Stewart a long time ago when he was on a CNN show called Crossfire, where he said, look, tearing apart politics from a side-by-side kind of analytical model will cause polarization in society and will ruin democracy. And dare I say, he might have been right. Well, he was right in in the epic takedown of Tucker Carlson and his bow tie. Mm, Okay, I'll give it to you there. But, Ron, here's the thing about this. Look, when we're talking about how politics is covered in the United States, it seems like, much like the new doctor, journalists kind of try to interject themselves as helpers of society, not so much reporters and observers these days. And that's changed things dynamically, hasn't it? It has. They think that they're helping by uh, coming up with their opinions and uh, and things like that. And, and it's, now, now we have to preface this by by saying that if you read a newspaper, if you still read newspapers, um, they seem to be still factual, with the exception of the op-eds. It's the cable television media. That seems to be the real culprit here. But because they're so in vogue right now, a lot of people don't read the newspaper. So a lot of people don't see that, oh, wait, the newspaper actually has some kind. But then you got to remember that there are newspapers that are owned by uh, uh, Rupert Murdoch, and he's got his own agenda. Yeah, but here's the thing. Because not a lot of people are reading print these days, thanks to the online digital media that sprung up as of, I don't know, the last three decades, Ron, 
it's not just the newspapers and the journalists trying to be the good guys. It's also having to kind of readdress their entire business model just to stay afloat. And this has changed the type of stories and the tone to the way that we cover certain stories. Yeah, I mean, I think, okay, here's where things get weird. Um, it's like when we have, we're doing a, doing a show like this, right? A lot of this is factual, but we do throw in, I think, I think at this point it's more like you shoot out the, the facts, I interpret them, and I say how I feel, which is not exactly a, a, a great way to do things. No, no. As a matter of fact, we have won absolutely zero awards for this. Well, and we're never going to win an award because every time I get nominated for something, I always come up way short. So uh, how about them Webbies? Yay! Here's the thing, Ron. Nobody is really giving out any trophies these days for good, honest journalism. Instead, it seems the award goes to the most sensational story or, not the most sensational, perhaps it's the most uh, expositional, the one that goes deeper than ever, but only along certain lines because you go too far this way or that way and you're going to offend your clients that are actually your advertisers, which is how you pay your staff. And look, with the way that things have changed and the tone that we have to address news in just to stay relevant, how long before objective stories are going to be a thing of the past in United States news? I honestly think it's coming soon. It's coming a lot sooner than we think. I think that um, any kind of objectification in the news is just going to be thrown by the wayside, especially in the climate we're living in with the whole you know, fake news and you have a president who is de- delegitimizing um, channels that he doesn't like. I mean, let's be real honest here. That's exactly what it is. He doesn't like CNN because they, they talk about him in a negative light. But he likes Fox News because they they plant their lips firmly upon his, uh, his cottage cheese derriere. And as such, that's the other thing. Now, with a highly politicized American culture... News outlets are starting to have to align themselves with certain political uh, parties and uh, political ideologies just to maintain what is called media access to these entities. And, and that's changing the way that they would normally talk. Now, it's kind of funny because this week, Ron, something very interesting happened on HBO. There was no new episode of Last Week Tonight. Did you know that? I was very upset that there wasn't. Did you know the reason why? I did not. It turns out that not too long ago, John Oliver made a very public decree at one of these interviews that he was at and said, from time to time, we take breaks from the show because getting the news story, and this is the funny thing, ready? Getting the story 100% accurate with completely verified and valid information is the reason that it takes so long to bring a story to air. And as such, if we think a story requires more digging, we will not do the show or even do that story until 
we know that everything is verified and valid. This is a comedy show, Ron. I, I don't, I guess I just don't, I, I, I'm shocked by the fact that there's some kind of integrity in the news media, even though it's, like you said, it's a comedy show. Well, this is the thing that Oliver brought up. The host of the show said, without actual structural truth to build on, every bit falls apart. And if that's true in his show, why isn't it true when it comes to mainstream news media? Because they're on a 24-hour news cycle and they have to keep churning out things to get people to watch. And if they don't, every uh, – it's – I keep going back to George Romero like he's a prophet or something. But in Dawn of the Dead, you know, they said every time – every second that there's not something on, people are going to tune out. And that's just it. Now news media is going more and more in different and crazy wild directions to keep eyes tuned on them. And we've even covered this – anxiety-based programming. Oh, yeah, stuff that, like, you know, when they, when they you, well, what they would call clickbait on the Internet, uh, just to get people to tune in because they're scared. Yeah, and at the end of the day, what that's done is it's led to a divide of how people not only consume information, but also how they talk about that information. We've went from a country that believes in discourse on one side or the other to... Let's just face it, I'm right and you're wrong, and that's the only stance there is. There used, there, there used to be discourse in this country. There used to be conversation. There used to be some kind of, I don't even know anymore. I don't get it. <laughs> I, I, I just, I'm so, my brain, it make, boom. Boom. Done and done, huh? Would yeah. you say that the United States media, as far as being redeemable past this point, with everything as highly politicized, as highly prismed as it is, because every view is only whatever spectrum they want to look at, with all of this stuff that we know, and how deeply entrenched this new media is in the actual audience of the United States, Ron, will we ever see a return Back to the good old days of objective, non-biased stories? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think it's just going to get worse, uh, especially with the growth of, of news media on the Internet. It's just it's not a pretty thing. Mm, so really, at the end of the day, me and you are part of the problem. We are definitely part of the problem. <sighs> well, let's go to collapsing... Well, from collapsing empires to collapsing ideas, because, Ron, I don't want to lay too much blame on us for ruining American politics, because we still need a career past this day's show. So let's move on to some people that, uh, well, I guess you could say are rightfully hated throughout history. Tell me, Ron, what is up with the super rich these last couple of years? They are getting everything that they want. It does seem to be, like Bob Marley said, a pimpa's paradise, huh? Yep. Well, exactly what he said. Yeah, well, I can't believe I'm agreeing with, uh, with Bob Marley. Yay! Mr. Robert Nesta Marley comes through again because when I bring up this story of the super rich, there's been this trend in society that, that recently, through a couple of different articles, has been looked through. And here's what they're saying. Ron, a long time ago, during the American Revolutionary War, who was the actual 
socioeconomic sector that was leading the charge for revolution. It was uh, the unions, wasn't it? It was the one percenters. Oh, those people. Yeah, you see, the top one percent wealthiest guys in the country that are now, some of them, physically on the money that we spend, they're the ones that got together and decided, that screw the queen, screw the crown, we're done with this. When, and this is the weird part of history, a large number of people supported just staying with the empire because of convenience. Oh, well, not convenient. Yes, but when it comes to the super-rich, they're the ones that initially pivoted the United States from a country, uh, from a colony into a country, and over the early formative years, and, and especially before we got things like antitrust laws and, and other protections against society, against monopolies, the top richest part of the United States has been driving nearly all of the policy. Oh, you mean people with money are in charge? Oh, my God. <sighs> yeah, I'm not kidding. Um, here's the thing, Ron. Uh, and I have really got to bring this up. When it comes to the super rich now, now, back in the 80s, we, 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 we glorified them again. Greed is good from Gordon Gekko and all of that. Um, here's the thing. When we went through glorifying them, the 90s brought on kind of a, another cultural revolution where people didn't really like the super rich anymore. And as such, they kind of went into the shadows as lobbyists and background investors and things like that. Now here we are in the year 2018, and we have seen a presidency roll back, and let's just be honest, a GOP-led Congress roll back taxes and oh God, penalties on the super-rich. The top 1% of this country got instantly rich from a tax cut that was sold to the middle class. And, Ron, what's old is new again. Are the super-rich back in control? I mean, you, should, you really have to ask that? I mean, look who the president is. Yeah, true, true. Um, here's the thing about the president. He has, as you said earlier in the show, basically bragged that he has gotten rich off of his career in the, the White House. Do you know who else, who is also running for re-election right now, um, who also got super rich off of his life um, in politics? Oh, I'm going to go on a, out on a limb here and assume that they're a uh, Republican. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and probably an older fella. Yes, uh, started off probably. his political career worth about five hundred thousand dollars. Is worth an estimated four point five million now. Okay, I'm, I'm gonna also guess that maybe he's an old white guy. Yeah. Um, Mitt Romney. No, you would be wrong. It's Ted Cruz out of Texas. Oh, lion or beautiful, depending on the day. Ted. Oh, Ted. I hope you enjoy your office while you have it. Because pretty soon, coming from the office of the Senate that you reside in is going to have Ride the Lightning by Metallica blaring out. 
Well, if the rich had a theme song right now, besides money, 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 uh, Ride the Lightning, I don't know if I would put it in there, but it does seem to be like I did it my way because under the current administration, and I'm not talking about just the White House, we have to talk about how deeply entrenched the 1% has become with the GOP. Ron, for a party that puts itself out there as a middle-class first kind of party, um, the GOP is really beholden to some deep pockets, aren't they? Oh, look at the Koch brothers. True. I mean, that's 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 right there. I mean, anybody with a a big enough pocketbook, and they want they want something out of out of these people because I don't know. I forget if it was the Daily Show or if it was. Uh, um, I think it was last week tonight when they talked to a. Uh, um, um, what was it? Uh, 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 some senators and, and so forth. Okay. And they were asking them about how um, they raise money and how most of the time <laughs> they're not on the floor. They're actually in a in a little booth uh, raising money, cold calling people. Oh yeah, yeah. I remember that story, and and that's kind of indicative of what's happening right now. Instead of focusing on legislation, a lot of people are focusing on funding because the very contentious, is it a blue wave? Is it a red sustain? Is it a, a purple massacre? A green? I did, we're running out of colors here, Ron. But uh, the thing is, is uh, instead of focusing on where we are as a country, a lot of guys are kind of just focusing on what gets them in the sound bites and what can get them donors later when they're trapped down in those sweaty cubicles. Yeah, and that's the thing. I'm sure people like Ted Cruz don't have to go into these sweaty cubicles because they have people like the Koch brothers who are just banking them and and their re-election campaigns. But if you look at some of the like Ted Cruz now, I don't see any ads for him. No. I only see ads for uh, uh, Beto O'Rourke. Now, uh, maybe maybe they're 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 back, not backing their horse anymore, or um, maybe they are. Uh, 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 maybe that that Beto O'Rourke just knows the right. Um, you uh, mean the right people, the right donors? Well, uh, well, no, no, the right, the right, the right ways to market himself. Okay, because that's kind of interesting that you said that. Because, Ron, as long as we're talking about money and elections, I, I want to bring up this story that I did not send you because I love throwing curveballs at you. Um, would you Thank believe, you, Randy Johnson? <laughs> would you believe that this year, the 2018 midterm election, is the year of? Small money. I would not. Now, okay, here's the thing. During the 2016 presidential election, one candidate actually amassed a lot of financial support behind their campaign, not through going to the big Koch brothers or donors, what have you, but instead by small donations from individuals, and it turns out that right now, when it comes to who's funding the campaigns of certain politicians across the United States, this year is the year that the big donors are actually kind of being shut out by individuals with five, ten dollars, twenty dollars here. Small money 
has started to amass itself through crowdsourcing as a political force. And that could really change the game, couldn't it? Yeah, I mean, if you get enough people with five, ten, fifteen, twenty dollars here and there, it, it really adds up a lot quicker and a lot uh, to, to be a lot more than when you have somebody like the Koch brothers who are just writing big checks. Yeah, and see, that's just it. When you write the big check, you're a lot more, dare I say, uh, obligated almost to to demand a favor for that amount of money, aren't you? Well, you are, and plus you got to remember, just because the Koch brothers write you a big check, that's only two votes. When it comes to the people who are donating 5, 10, 15, 20, you're getting each one of those people to vote for you. Mm-hmm. So, And that adds up a lot quicker. Than, you know, so the, it adds up vote-wise and monetarily-wise. So, Yeah, yeah, you got a kind of point there. The thing is, though, is that with small money now starting to enter the fray, people are amassing support behind candidates like a Beto O'Rourke that normally wouldn't gleam the surface of the funding structures. And remember that whole sweatbox thing that you were mentioning earlier? Because of public interest in politics and the small money donations and the crowdsourcing behind certain campaigns, Ron, those sweatboxes could actually be a thing of the past. Oh, wouldn't that be great? Then maybe they can actually do something. (laughs) Right? Because I hate to say it, but if anything, the current situation in the United States leading up to the election, and and I've talked about this online, basically shows you that money is going to speak in this election louder than any other block. And it just pains me to think about that being our country now. Yeah, well, as much as it pains you, as far as the experts go, they're starting to look at this small money new phenomenon as a way of eradicating or at least helping to curb special interest in super PAC funding of politicians, where we end up, much like we have now with this Congress, a very ideologically narrow base of leadership. Yeah, and uh, Shaggy, I have no, you know, I, we have, there is no hope. Well, I mean, you say that, but I just gave you a story right here at the end to say, yeah, you do have some hope. America- I don't know. I mean, I, I, everything comes around. It's, it's everything is cyclical, you know, and 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 as much hope as you can get from thinking about, oh, look at this, the small donations and 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 the, uh, the exodus of big money. At some point, there's going to be a Democrat that gets elected, and they're going to do stuff to really upset the people with money, and then the big money is going to come back. Everything everything that has happened will happen again. Even with the DNC curtailing the power of their superdelegates? Even with the DNC, it'll come back. Everything comes back. Uh, Even with the whole Bernie Sanders-esque rewriting of how they want to go forward? Something that was very popular in the 2016 elections. Yeah, I know, but I'm just, I'm worried. Uh, Every time we get a little bit ahead as a a, a blue, uh, you know, wave rider, as it were, Every time we get a little bit ahead, something happens to tear everything down. We were all behind Al Franken and like, wow, voice of reason in the Democratic Party. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But that's the thing is if you look at on a level of things that happened, 
he what he's done is nothing compared to what the commander in chief has done. But he stepped down. Yeah, and the commander in chief actually said that his biggest crime was in stepping down and admitting guilt. <sighs> so, Ron, here's the thing. The small money stories, the world hunger stories, I'm going to ask you like I do from time to time at the end of most shows. Is there any hope? No, I really don't think so. I mean, look at look at what happened. Remember, remember the doctor strike in New York? Mm-hmm. The mortality rate in New York during the doctor strike was cut in half. Well, Ron, I hate to say this, but I'm going to have to cut your answer off in half because we've reached the end of the show. Hey, where can everybody find you? Uh, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Real Ron Pertee. All the links go there. Or you can look for the Ron Pertee show on Spotify and Stitcher and iTunes and all those good places. Well, well until next week, try to keep your chin up there, sunshine. Yeah, I will. I'm, I'm, I'm a ball of freaking sunshine. <laughs> and for everybody else, make sure that you follow us at Shaggy Live and subscribe to us on Stitcher and Spotify. Oh, and give us a like or two. Until next time, love you, love you mean it. Get in, bye.